Okay, am I on? Good. I'll double check that. I brought the water. That's because I had trouble after the, towards the end of the first service. You only have to worry if the pastor brings lunch. <coughs> <coughs> All right. Before we move on, I, I do have a prayer request. Susan had talked about this uh, Andrew Brunson, who's having a trial this week, and a missionary from Turkey, I mean, not a missionary, but a pastor from Turkey, under great uh, bad conditions and persecution. Our, our Sunday school class is for the last nine years has been praying for A.C. Bibi in Afghanistan, uh, who's been away from her family for nine years, her husband and children. So as we gather together as his people, it is good for us to remember those who are suffering and serving in other places. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to pray and that the prayer, power of our prayer, Lord, uh, is the, equal to your power. In, in going to meet the needs of those we seek to intercede for. So we do pray, Father, for a couple of people that we don't personally know, but we know of their struggles. And one of them is Andrew Brunson, who's in Turkey and facing uh, great persecution in prison, facing trial. So we pray, Father, that for release or for your glory, your purpose to be accomplished in his imprisonment and his life, and that you'll be with his family and strengthen them in this time of persecution. And we pray for his ability to remain faithful. We pray for ACBB, Lord, uh, in Afghanistan, who has been in jail for all the time her children are growing up and away from her husband, being toyed with all kinds of politi political games and, and issues. And we just pray for her, for her testimony, for her faithfulness. We pray, Father, for her encouragement, for the loss that she experiences personally, that she might gain strength, Lord, by the prayers of others and, and the need, that her needs might be met. We pray for these and hundreds and thousands of others who today are worshiping you, Lord, and glorifying you in their lives and in their struggles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> well, this past week, I had the privilege of going shopping. How many of you guys believe that? <laughs> All right, maybe so. Anyway, we went to Medford, and I've been there quite a few times over the years. And uh, while we were there, uh, my wife and I got a little separated, and I got tempted. I was walking through the, uh, the downstairs area, and I, I saw all these chairs. They had these, looked like big recliners, and I'm a recliner fan. And they had them all over there in, in groups, but they were not just regular recliners. They were supposedly massage chairs. And I've seen people, look at, you know, sitting on those and seem so happy and content. And so I, wife was separated for a little while, and I, and I thought, nobody's looking. And they had these, these prices, you know, and for $1, I could get three minutes of massage and comfort and relaxation. So I, I stuck my dollar in, sat in that chair ready to relax and get all this peace and quiet and de-stressing, and it came on. And it started hitting me all over the back. It was like rocks that kept hitting the back of that chair. And that hit, and then hit, and I twist, and it hit my backbone. And, and I was, it was feeling, and then it would vibrate. And I, and I was feeling like I couldn't talk. And, and, and I, I, I kind of wanted to escape. I felt like a, like, a, like a cat who got electrocuted or something. It was really not good. And it went on, and it started doing weird, weird little things and swirling around my back and hip. And I thought... And then you got these things you put your feet in, your legs in, and it was starting to wrap around them, and, and it just kept going. Three minutes goes a long time, and I think, I'm going to survive this thing. And finally, about 30 seconds before it was over, Linda came back, and I said, 
you want to try this? I have 30 seconds left, you know. And I pulled myself out of that chair, and I told him, man, I hurt. I, I felt pretty good until I got in that chair, but I think I've injured something. So uh, anyway, it didn't turn out what I had hoped it would. And sometimes over the years, I've actually come to church with the expectation that I'm going to kick back in my padded pew and relax and, and be de-stressed. And, uh, and if the plate goes by, I put my, my dollar in, you know, and then I, I sit back and, and relax and think. I, and then all of a sudden I get slammed. Uh, the preacher just keeps, and I was, especially when I was a young Christian, I thought I had it all figured out and then he'd tell me something else. And I, I thought, well, I came away kind of discouraged and defeated. And uh, I want to tell you this morning that I want to assure you that we are in for a special and joyous few minutes in God's Word. The best scripture in all, well, it's the Mount Everest of the New Testament. And that is John 3.16. Uh, we're going to spend some time there. And, and Davy's fixed it up for us in the King James Version too. Appreciate that. So we're all on the same one. If some of you may be old enough to remember the King James Version and uh, For God So Loved the World, but most of us learned that, that way. So I'd like for us to say it together, if you would, the scripture that we'll be studying this morning. You ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're going to break this verse, this great mini-gospel, into four pieces, four quarters, each and uh, one of the four points, each one of them answering a vital question that is answered within the verse itself. These four answers provide four truths of the gospel that make for truly great news and a reason to be excited today as we're together and as we leave. So in addition to the outline that you might want to put down of these four questions and their answers, I will include for you images that can be drawn now, with children mostly left, but if you're artistic and want to draw, you can draw, draw uh, symbols for the outline as well. So this is truly a multimedia presentation, okay? Uh, so the first question I'd like for us to answer, before we do, let's, let's ask God to pray, guide us. Father, we, we've, we're reading your word, and it's a, it's a beautiful, sacred part of Scripture. It's a place where your son explained to Nicodemus, what it is to be born again and enter the kingdom, and then began to explain salvation and all that it means. And we just thank you, Lord, that this great verse is in the heart of so many people, and we pray that you'll bring it, its meaning and, and message to us in a strong way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question I'd like for us to ask is, how does God feel about me? How does God feel about me? This, this, this verse says that God loves you, not just you, but the whole world. But it's important, if we're, he loves the whole world, that includes you, right? Okay, it includes us. He loves you this morning. It's an important message that this scripture brings us. God's love is big enough to include all 195 nations. Did you know there were that many? You might want to go ahead and write those down sometime, see how many you know. 195 nations, it's big enough, his love is, to embrace all races, the four major races, and 30 subgroups, and all 7,106 living languages, all those people. God loves them. He loves the world. He loves all economic classes, from the desperately poor to the filthy rich, all the conditions, including the, me the mentally and physically disabled, all ages, from the noisiest child to the wildest teenager to the busiest young parent, 
to the oldest and sickest in our communities, to the janitor, to the teacher, to the businessman, to the laborer, to the educated, to the illiterate, to the homeless, to the resident of the grandest mission, to the guiltiest criminal, to the greatest judge. God loves the whole world. That's something to smile about. All right? All right. God loves the whole world. God is not a cruel monster seeking to judge and punish, but one whose love knows no boundaries. And so if you're here this morning, I have a message from this scripture. God loves you. Amen? All right. D.L. Moody, the greatest American evangelist before, you don't, we don't know him, but he was before Abraham, I mean before, before Billy Graham. We just lost Billy Graham. Before that was D.L. Moody, uh, the, shoe, the, sh the shoe salesman that was saved and became a great evangelist. Well, Moody had been in Britain in the early days of his ministry, and he met a young English preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse. Henry Morehouse was saved, but he didn't have any real education, but he loved the scriptures and saturated himself with them. And one day Morehouse said to Moody when he was there in, in, England, in Britain, I am thinking of going to America. Well, said Moody, if you should ever get to Chicago, you've got to be careful saying these things, if you should ever come to Chicago, come down to my church and I'll give you a chance to preach. Moody was just being polite. He didn't really expect him to come, of course. A lot of times we say, if you're ever in Northern California, come see us. It seems safe if they're in New York, you know. <laughs> But I had that happen to me one time. I did that, and somebody from New York came and spent two weeks. I got to get him out of the house because <laughs> I didn't really know him. You know, he, he came to live, and he's just supposed to visit. Anyway, Moody had never heard him preach and had no idea what he, should, what he would say if he came to Chicago. But a little later, Moody had a returned home. Uh, he received a telegram which said, I've just arrived in New York. We'll be in Chicago on Sunday, which created a problem for Moody because... Uh, he was perplexed what he should do. So it was a complicated matter. He was leaving for a series of meetings. And here he thought, I'm just about to leave, and I'll be gone Sunday, and Morehouse is coming, and I have promised him a chance to preach. So finally he said to his wife and some other leaders in the church, I think that I should let him preach once. So let's let him preach once, and then if the people enjoy him, we'll put him on again. So Moody was gone for a week, and when he returned, he said to his wife, how did the young preacher do? Oh, he's a better preacher than you are, his wife said. Which was right. He's telling sinners that God loves them. That is not right, said Moody. God does not love sinners. Well, she said, you need to come hear him. Uh, what, said Moody? He, he's still preaching? Yeah, he's been here all week. He only has one verse, uh, but he's been using the same one every, every day, John 3.16. Well, Moody went to the meeting. Morehouse got up and began by saying, I have been hunting for a text all week, and I have not been able to find a better text than John 3.16. So I think we will just talk about it one more time. He began to preach, and afterward, Moody testified that it was on that night that he got his first clear understanding of the gospel and the great love of God, and it changed his evangelistic ministry. There's a seldom sung hymn written by F.M. Lehman that someone wrote an extra stanza to. They found this stanza written on the wall of an asylum for the mentally ill. And he obviously had experienced the love of God before he died. But they, this, this extra verse said, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made 
were every stock and earth a quill, and every man a scribe in trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. How does God feel about you? He loves you. How does it make you feel? That the God who created us, the God of the universe, absolutely loves you personally. I'm, if you're this morning doing the, uh, the symbols to go with the message, the first symbol would be a heart. Any shape you want to make. Well, it has to be a heart shape, but you can make it any size you want. And that would be the symbol of the first message that we find here. For God so loved the world. The second question I would like to ask is, how do I know he loves me? Well, I worked in an in office I, I had a, at the Opportunity Center. I was the director there, and I had an office right next to where people came in and where the break room was and all that. And I also worked with some of our, before I got that position, with a, an office that had several young people working in it. And I would hear the phone ring, and I would know they were talking to their wives most of the time, or sometimes to their husbands. And they always ended their conversation with, I love you. I got so tired of hearing, I love you. You just told me that 30 minutes ago, and you called again, and you say it again. But they always ended the conversation with, I love you. And then I ran into that with my kids. Uh, they kind of ended their phone calls always with, I love you, and getting kind of used to it, and it's a good thing. But I was raised in a family that my dad said, I love you, to my mother. And then it's the idea, if I change my mind, I'll tell you. But he, he never told her he changed his mind. No, later on, he, he changed. But that was kind of the culture. Uh, it was kind of not said. But it was assumed. But the key thing to that generation was not just that I say it, but I show you that I love you by what I do. And what did God do to show his love? How do we know he loves us? Because he gave us his only unique begotten son. He gave us a gift. He gave us his son who stepped down from heaven and came into our world and lived a perfect life and died on a cruel cross to save those he loved. And who does he love? He loves you. And he loves me. So he was, what was he doing in our world? He was letting him be crucified for us. Um, God is a God of love, but he's a holy God. He has no party with sin. He can, cannot, contain, cannot encounter it, cannot, cannot leave it unresolved, undealt with. So God had, some, we would kind of call it a dilemma. He loved us, but he hates sin. and has absolutely no ability to accommodate sin. And yet, the Bible says, all of us have sinned, so all of us, that's us, all the world has sinned, and we fall short of the glory and purpose of God. And the wages, the Bible says, of sin is death. So we got a problem. God loves the world, but the world has sinned and turned against him. Disobeyed him, there's not one righteous, there are some more unrighteous than others, but they're all unrighteous, they all fall short of the glory of God. So what does God, the God of love, do? He sends his own unique son and allows him to step down from heaven and enter our world through the manger 
to encounter our life and to live a sinless life. And then, as we've seen in the last weeks, at the end of his ministry, he enters Jerusalem with an intent to give his life and accept the punishment we deserve and have it placed upon him and to pay the price for our sins and so that we might be forgiven. He was the sinless Savior, the Lamb of God, who was then placed upon the cross and ridiculed and mocked and, and killed there on that cross. In payment for our sins, he had done none of his own. This touched my life when I was a nine-year-old and heard this for the first time. Jesus, I got to hearing about him, and he seemed so amazing, his love and his goodness. And then they killed him. I didn't understand. And then I found out that he died on purpose for me. I deserve it, but I don't have to because God paid for my sins since sending his son Jesus. He gave a gift, a unique and wonderful gift of his son. How do we know God loves us? Because he gave us that which was most precious to him, his own unique son. He, came of, he really came in the flesh to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We were in debt that we could not pay, and God sent his son to pay that price. He gave us on an old rugged cross. If you're drawing your symbols, the symbol for this truth is the cross. You can make it a wide one, a skinny one. You can highlight it in whatever way you want. But that is the gift that God sent, was his son to die on the cross for our sins because he loved us. Third question is, what does God want from us in response to his gift? Does he want us to be good moral people? To know his word inside out? To go to church every Sunday? To give to the poor? To support missions? To be baptized and observe the Lord's Supper? To be kind and loving to others? Be a good worker and provide for our families. Nothing wrong with that. Those are good things. And I think God would want those things. But that's not what God wants in response to his gift. What he wanted is for us believe that what he has done for us and stake our life on it. Whosoever believeth in him. He wants us to believe in him. I, got, I didn't have a prop this morning, but I got a prop. So I'll come and get my, my chair. You know, as I became a more mature adult, that's, an, that's a joke. <laughs> anyway, it can be taken as old or it can be taken as too heavy. But anyway, you got to be careful about chairs. Now, we can talk about this chair. Now, this is a well-made chair. I can see it's got metal and it's got the design. It feels firm. I could talk about this chair as being comfortable, being strong enough to support, say, 250, 300 pounds probably. I don't know. But we can talk about it. We can analyze it. We can say this is a chair that you can count on. It'll support you, and you can, you can count, and, and it's a, it'll be good for whatever need you have, and you can rest in it. And I can talk about it, and I can analyze it, and I can say, I know people that sit in this chair. A whole bunch of people sit in chairs like this and all this guy. I can talk about it all that I want. But, you know, it really isn't personal to me until I believe this chair would support me if I put myself on it. And so, as you've seen over the years, the, this illustration is that, ah, it does support me. It doesn't support my, my microphone, but, uh, yeah. Isn't that good timing, huh? Okay. Anyway, 
So anyway, I'm sitting in that chair, and now I have not only um, believe in the sense of my head knowledge that it's a good chair and it'll support me, but I also now have actually experienced the support and trusted my whole body to sit on that thing and be all right. And another situation is, is our kids began to leave home and go all over the country. We began to travel by plane a lot. And, um, and at first, it was a kind of scary experience a little bit. I remember going with a bunch of junior high kids on a flight down to Southern California to Disneyland for the school project. And, um, and as soon as a lot of them had, from up here had never been in a plane. And when we took off and, and you could feel we left the ground, there was a united, almost, you know, ooh, you know, it was a, all over. It sounded like it was, it was choreographed or, or a chorus. There was that sensation of lifting off and being in that plane. You know, you can talk about planes and aerodynamics and tell how many people have flown and, and come back safely and all these things. But it's a different deal when you actually walk up into the plane, sit down, and put the seatbelt on. And then you have put yourself at that mercy. And when it takes off the ground, you no longer have control. You can't put out. There's no training wheels. There's no place to put on brakes. You're up there, and you're in the sky, and there's a guy dri driving that thing you don't even know, and he's behind closed doors. And, and it's a different deal. Now you experience trusting that plane with your life. And wherever it goes, you go. And it, and, you, and it really becomes personal. What God wants in response to his gift of love in sending Jesus to be our Savior and dying for our sins is for us to believe not only in our head, but to believe by giving our whole life to him and trusting our life into the hands of the one who sent his son to, to Jesus to be our Savior. And that is, uh, that is so important that it's personal. We have a lot of people, and sometimes people that sit in church, who believe all that the Bible tells about Jesus, who believe he's had a powerful effect in people's lives, and, and talk about Jesus, and study about Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus personally, and haven't trusted him with your life, and said, here I am, Lord, I trust, and I take the gift that you gave me, which is salvation and forgiveness of sin through what Jesus did on the cross, then it doesn't really meet your need. It doesn't really make you a believer. What God wants is you to respond by receiving his love and his gift of his son and, and inviting him into your life and trusting him with your life. And that is a great joy when we do that. He wants us to believe him and what he has done for us. Do you believe he died for you? Have you given him your life in response? Is he the Lord? Is he the one in charge? Have you trusted your whole life to him? Or are you just saying, I need an insurance policy to get me into heaven? Or I kind of believe he's a good person, but I have never trusted him with my life. If you never experienced Jesus and the relationship that comes by receiving him as Lord and Savior, then this verse encourages us. God loves us. And he sent his son to die for us and make it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins that whosoever believes and puts their trust in him will not perish. Trust. Now, a lot of times we hear the word faith. Uh, John uses believe a lot more than faith. Different gospel writers. It's all talking about the same thing because my favorite acrostic is faith. F, forsaking, A, all, I, I, T, trust, H, him. Forsaking all, 
I trust him. Having faith in Jesus, I forsake all other efforts, all other desires, all other ways to try to please God, and I trust Jesus and what God has done in him only for my salvation. That's faith, and that basically is trust. I am trusting my life and my future and my salvation to him and my life as him's my Lord. So if we're going to draw an outline, you can draw a, a chair. You can draw in all kinds of configurations with, with uh, speakers and stuff falling off or whatever you want. And then you can draw a plane or a jet. Whatever reminds you of the message that God wants us to put our faith and trust in him. The fourth question is, what does God promise to you if you believe in Jesus and trust him to be your savior? He promises you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, everlasting means forever, and that's the way we memorized it in the King James. And, and I always thought, and it emphasizes everlasting. But in the Gospel of John, in this scripture, and other translations, I like a lot better. And it's more true to what he often talks about when he talks about the future, is eternal life. And his definition of eternal life is not just living forever, but it's living forever in relationship with Jesus. It has something more than just eternal endurance quality, but it has to do with that relationship that we have forever when we invite Jesus into our life. We accept him as our Lord and Savior. That's a forever relationship. He comes in, takes his, makes his home in our lives, and he's there forever. You know, I'm glad because it seems like a lot of times I'm not always there for him. But Jesus has always been there in me. And he guides me and calls me back and disciplines and does what he needs to be done. But I will not perish. And perish basically means to be separated from God forever. I will now be with God forever in Jesus. Make sense? Okay. Now, I have a vivid story in my childhood. I always have to tell a story of some sort. And uh, my dad just passed away in February. And... My favorite times with dad were, were hunting and uh, not really killing anything, but going out in the woods. We had a good time. But in my childhood hunting, we, my dad worked on the, the Trinity Dam back in the, in the, I think, 50s or whatever. It was a long time ago. Well, it was a long time ago. Yeah, it must have been the 50s, late 50s, because I was in the fourth and fifth grade when we spent time there while well, he was building the dam. And I went with him hunting in the Trinity Alps near Weaverville. And, uh, and back in those days, we didn't have whole shoe stores so kids could have 14 kinds of shoes, uh, one for each day of the week and one for each holiday. We only had one pair of shoes. And they were made out of leather, and they were durable. And they, because they last a long time, you could wear them to, uh, to play in, and you could wear them uh, to go to church, and you polish it up and get all the dirt off of it. You, get, you, got, you had one pair of shoes, but they weren't necessarily great hiking shoes because you'd slip and slide with those leather soles and I would walk with Dad, and we went to a place called, interesting enough, I remember it, called the Devil's Backbone. I don't know where it is, but it's somewhere in Trinity Alps. And uh, pretty well, it was uh, pretty steep, and it kind of looked like a backbone on both, it kind of peaked, and then both sides had slopes. And I was slipping and sliding behind Dad, who always was ahead of me, uh, because I was slow, but also because I was slipping and sliding, and also because he wanted to see what was out there before I scared it off. And so we would, we would go along the hillside. And suddenly, from ahead of me, I heard my father yell, Stop! Don't move! And he said it with a voice that I had never heard my dad. Dad never punished me or raised his voice. Probably should have, but he didn't. 
And when I heard this, it startled me. What's wrong? It, it got my attention. So I did what he said. I didn't move. And I saw he was ahead of me and up, and he came down sideways with these good boots that he wore to work, and he got close to me. And then he reached out, and he said, take my hand. And I took his hand, and he started pulling me up the hill with him. I didn't do anything, but just what he said. I put my hand in his and trusted him. He led me up the top of the hill, and we looked down. He said, now look, you were down there, and I saw that my feet were about two feet from the edge of the cliff. I had come down the slope to where it abruptly dropped down, and I don't know how many feet, estimating back then, I may be overestimating, 50 feet and a bunch of rocks down below. But it looked to me like I would have been in bad shape, like I, my, he would have had a lot of explaining to do to mom. Uh, how he lost me. But it was scary. But I, I, I was saved, and I, I did not perish in that incident. And I remembered the dad doing that. And that God loves you. He sent his son to come and pay for your sins so that if you'll hear his voice and put your life in his hands, he will save you, and you'll not perish but have eternal life. And he will guide you and lead you forever. I heard the call of my father, and, I reached, and he reached out to me, and I put my hand in his hand, and he led me to safety and, and take him out of that devil's backbone. So the final symbol of these, use, these uh, pictures for the outline, you, you, you draw a hand. And why, why a hand? Because the scripture says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when I would talk to young children about their, when they accepted Jesus before we baptized them, we'd talk about salvation. And I always talked to them about this. You just take your hand. You're always going to have your hand handy. handy. I will never leave. And the thumb pointed to you. I said, anytime you have questions or doubts, just remember, I will never leave you. I had a cool experience this morning after the morning service. You're not here, are you, Remy? Okay, she was here in the morning, sir. She came up to me and she said, you know, I remember when I was eight years old and you came to my house and you told me the same thing. <laughs> you said, I was there and I said, the next thing is, is a hand. And it made me feel really good. She was eight years old then, but, but she's a young lady now and serving the Lord. And the gospel that she heard and understood as a child has become mature. And... It's cool to see the power of the message in the life. And so, I will never leave you is the truth. If we receive Christ into our life and he comes in and dwells there, he will never leave us or forsake us or as the one scripture says, abandon us. Sometimes we aren't faithful to him, but he never abandons us. So, the good news in review. God loves you. I hate to move from that one. It's so good. God loves you. He showed it while you, we were yet sinners. God sent Jesus to die in our place to pay for our sins. He calls us to believe in his son and what he has done for us and surrender our life and put it into his hands. And he promises in Hebrews 13.5 that if we will, he will never leave us nor forsake us and we will never perish. But there's another key word in this scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that 
whosoever believeth in him. The whosoever. We saw that God loves all of us, and he also says, of all of us, whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So I have really good news, and I'm not trying to beat you up this morning. God loves you, and whoever you are, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he will come in and dwell in you and stay with you forever and lead and guide your life. Now, if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. And I know it's a child's level, John 3.16, but it doesn't get any better than that. It's a truth you want to hold in your heart, a scripture you want to remember. God loves us. And this is the invitation found right in that scripture. The invitation is to come to him and put your faith in him. Let's stand together. Lord, we've come from many places this morning. We come with some of the stresses of life, some problems that we don't know how to solve, some questions that bring doubt to our mind, some failures and discouragements, and some sin that we need to be forgiven of. Lord, help us to hear the gospel as you shared it with us and as you shared it in the scripture, as you were talking to Nicodemus and explaining things. showing us how much you loved us by sending your son to die in our place and making it possible for our sins to be forever forgiven. Help us even today, if we're trusting anything else to save us, to hear your voice and put our faith in you alone and what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you for the assurance of our life with you forever. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never let their whole life put it in your hands and said, I trust you. I give up. I don't want to be independent. I don't want to do it my way. I want to give myself to you. I reach out. I take your hand, Lord. Take me, come into my heart and come into my life. We pray, Father, that if there's one that hasn't done that this morning, that they will. We pray that others, Lord, who have shared this treasure and have you in their heart will feel compelled to share the good news, the simple message of your love and your sacrifice and gift. So we pray, Lord, that you'll have your way and that you'll lift us up this morning and that uh, we can leave here rejoicing. So we just pray, Father, in this time of, of singing and sharing as the message of the song has something special to say, that we will get things right with you or that we'll rejoice in our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.